Now from the Milken Institute, responding to COVID-19, conversations with Mike Milken. There have been people virtually tipping bartenders, artists, neighbors, small businesses. And people not only are doing that, but when they receive that, are then paying that forward to somebody else who is even in more desperate need. That's Dan Schulman. He's the president and CEO of PayPal. With over 300 million consumers and 25 million merchants using his platform, he has unique insights into the world's spending habits. He believes the pandemic has already accelerated the shift toward a completely cashless society. He spoke recently with Milken Institute and Faster Cures chairman, Mike Milken. Dan, thank you for joining us this morning. Mike, thank you so much for having me. Pleasure to be with you. PayPal has changed the world. With more than 300 million active accounts, allowing individuals to send, receive, and hold funds in 25 different currencies as the world attempts to move someday to a cashless society. But the promise of what a company like PayPal could be has become a reality under your leadership. Let's start with your own 25,000 employees in hundreds of countries today. How have you responded? How has your team responded to the COVID-19 crisis? Well, first of all, thanks for that really kind introduction, Mike. I appreciate it. I think from the very beginning, since I arrived almost six years ago, the first and most important focus that I've had is on creating a passionate and financially secure employee base. Because I think the number one competitive advantage that any company has is its employees. You can have a great strategy, great leadership, be in the right market. But if you don't attract the best talent to your organization, there's no way you can innovate. There's no way you can serve customers. And obviously, if you don't serve customers well, your shareholders are left behind. And so, you know, we've been focused on this for quite some time as COVID-19 entered the global picture. The first thing that I did is commit to no layoffs as a direct result of COVID-19. We had already put in place a number of programs to assure financial health. But what I wanted to be sure is employees knew we had their back. We immediately went from being really 100% from the office to 100% work from home. And uh, we'll remain work from home at least through October as we see how the uh, virus progresses and how we protect the health and safety of our employees as we start to reopen. Dan, 25,000 employees and dozens of countries around the world. How do you develop a work-from-home strategy for such a diverse work group? Things that you might think are impossible to do are possible when you have no other choice. You know, if I had said to my team, I'd like to think about 100% work-from-home, and I'd like to do it in three weeks' time, they would have just laughed at the absurdity of that concept. There are security concerns, there are technology issues, and they would have told me that to do this the right way, it would have taken two, maybe three years to go and do it. And we pulled that off in three weeks. And by the way, 
That happened across one company after another, which is really, really interesting to me. And so obviously we had to think about home environments. We had to think about what technology do we need to do. We had to increase our infrastructure. But we are very fortunate in that we're a tech company. Well over half our workforce are product or engineers, and they can work remotely in a quite facile manner. In fact, we're putting out about 14% more software releases than we did when we were in the office. So I think it's also, by the way, just to be clear, an evolving set of issues that we need to think about. At first, it was all about health. We told everybody, even if you can't work from home, we are still going to pay you. So don't worry about that. We have to worry about your health and your safety first. You know, it's now moved to how do we make people more productive from home? And now our seeing is, in some ways, it's probably going to change the future of work forever going forward. You're never going to go back to what was, at least until there's widespread vaccines available and people aren't going to be allowed in conference rooms and cafeterias are going to be closed. And, and so it's going to force a reimagination of how we work, how we stay in touch. We're working our way through that, making sure that our community stays together and that we can execute against the vision and mission that we have, consistent with the values that we have as a company. One of the things, Dan, in all of our interactions that has struck me is in many ways your social activism playing out at PayPal. I'd like to just go back in time and then come back to today. What was it in your youth or growing up or history? that led you in many ways to this social activism strategy that you've deployed? My dad always said to me, son, the one thing you can't choose is your parents. And um, it was interesting because we're all so impacted by the way that our parents raise us. And I was fortunate to have two real role models and my mom and my dad my mom was a social activist very naturally, and my dad came to it probably more reluctantly and then embraced it fully. Some of my earliest memories, probably even before I had memories, was my mom pushing me in my baby carriage at civil rights marches. I remember distinctly my dad ran a chemical plant, several of them, and one of them was down in Mississippi. And the plant manager fired somebody who worked for my dad for drinking from the wrong water fountain. You know, my dad traveled down to Mississippi. This is really in the height of, you know, all of the unrest to basically confront the plant manager and say, you know, look, uh, this employee works for me. And uh, that's not the way that my values are reflected. And we're going to reinstate him. And I remember my mom being really worried, waiting for a phone call from my dad to make sure he was okay. And what I learned from some of those things is that standing up for the values and beliefs you have is often a courageous thing to do. It's not an easy thing to go do, especially when you're in such a politically sensitive time that we're in today. But I feel like as I've gotten older, that defining the mission of a company to be about more than just making money, 
And then creating values behind that, that support that, that are about inclusiveness, that are about diversity, that are about wellness of your employees. That mission and those values that support that are more and more important to me. And I realize just how crucial they are to the success of a company going forward. And I think one of the things when I got to PayPal, you know, a lot of people thought we were a dinosaur, you know, that we were yesterday's news, that a lot of new entrants were coming into digital payments. And what I realized is if we were going to make that pivot and become innovative again, if we had to create a work environment that was meaningful, exciting, that reflected values that people could look up to and that we would act on them. And that was the only way to attract the very best talent. And slowly but surely that happened. And the foundation for that is passionate, financially secure employees. So, Dan, one of the things that strikes me is many similarities in our career. I was at Berkeley and there a few months before the free speech movement began in 1964, came home to Los Angeles in August of 65 for a while and the Watts riots occurred. And I met a young African-American man that told me he didn't have access to capital, his father didn't, and he never would because of his race. Went back and kind of changed my major to finance and business and began my own path of searching for ways to provide capital to the millions of potential companies and creating markets in that area. And, and one of the things of the thousands of companies I had the honor and opportunity to finance, I only had one CEO ever tell me he was in it for the money. They were in it for passion, for an idea, something they believed in the most successful. A new industry, whether it be mobile or whether it be cable that was given birth or whether it's a biotech company or a new way of delivering healthcare was their passion. And wealth was a byproduct of creating something. I think you focus not only on the health of your employees during this COVID crisis, but I think more than any other, the financial stability of your employees. If you could talk to us just for a few minutes about what you learned about your own employees. There was an economic crisis well before the economic crisis caused by COVID-19. You have billions of people who are outside the financial system in the United States alone. 185 million adults struggle to make ends meet at the end of the month. Something like over half of the U.S. population has less than $400 of savings. I mean, they're one car repair or home repair away from true financial distress. They worry whether their kids will have a better life than they did. And so they struggle. And I thought to myself when I heard these facts that, you know, we need to do something about that. But certainly that's not the case with PayPal employees, because everywhere around the world, we pay at the market or above the market for the most part. We did a study, which shocked me, our hourly employees, our call center employees, that's about half the population of uh, PayPal. About two-thirds of them struggled to make ends meet at the end of the month and were financially distressed. I asked my team how that was possible 
given that we paid at or above market. And what the response came is we would have to do something very different and come up with a measure of how we can measure somebody's financial health. And we came up with something that I think was really innovative. We called it net disposable income or NDI. And basically we looked location by location and we looked at how much net income did somebody have after they paid their taxes and their essential living expenses like housing and transportation and food. And what I found is that on average, our employees had four to 6% net disposable income available. And no wonder they were struggling. We looked at the cost of benefits because benefits are really kind of like a regressive tax. You and I pay the same amount for benefits that somebody who's making much less pays the exact same amount. And so what we did is for half of the population of PayPal, we took down the cost of benefits by almost 60%. By the way, that in and of itself was like celebrated almost more than anything else we did because now people could sign up for healthcare benefits. They didn't have to trade off were their kids covered or could they put food on the table? So that was number one. Number two is we made every single employee of PayPal a shareholder. We gave them a restricted stock so that they could share in the success of PayPal. And this can be really meaningful in terms of them seeing how their actions lead to their own financial health. We then raised salaries where we needed to raise salaries and we wrapped all of that into a financial literacy program. Because for many of this employee population, they had never had equity before. They had never been able to uh, save. And what we basically tried to do is target a net disposable income, an NDI of 20% for every one of our employees. And we're well on our way of getting there. And it's the first time they've been able to save, first time they've been able to think about putting their kids to college, first time they've been able to sign up for a full suite of healthcare benefits. And the passion for the company that that released well, well, well outweighs any of the costs that that might've cost us. And I think it was one of the proudest moments that I've had and my leadership team had in terms of just like doing the right thing by our employees. And we've just seen that pay back multiple fold. So COVID-19 crisis, Dan. We're really focused on leadership in this point in time, and I think you've covered many of these issues involving your own employees, but you have merchants who interact here with your digital payment systems. They are in financial trouble themselves. They've been forced to close. And how have you interacted with this group? So Immediately after we kind of took care of our employees, our focus quite rapidly shifted to our customers, whether they be the 25 million plus merchants or the over 300 million consumers that are on our platform. And so one of the very first things we did is we basically put into place a series of actions to help customers that all in would cost us somewhere around $200 million. But we felt like we are a financially strong company. So we waived a number of fees. We allowed people to postpone, delay payments that they might have. We increased cash back. We allowed them to instantaneously have access 
to their funds with no fees. And we put those all in place right away. Not only did customers know that we did these things because we were quite vocal about it, put out emails to them, just like we didn't try and hide that we were doing this. We tried to maximize the number of people that knew about it. But their appreciation for us doing that and, you know, something like 85, 87% of them saying that as a result of this, they're basically going to stay with PayPal forever. We also worked with the government. We were one of the very first non-bank companies to be able to deploy funds through the Paycheck Protection Program. And Mike, here's the really interesting thing about that. We've done over 50,000 loans to small businesses. The average size of the loan that we're deploying is $31,000 compared to the banks that are doing this that are all greater than $100,000, $125,000 on average. And so we are really reaching the very smallest of businesses in underserved communities that most need these kinds of loans to be able to get by and to be able to provide that to them. And that has been really something that I'm very proud to be a part of, very proud to be able to help communities, businesses around the country to maintain, as a result of those, some 250,000 jobs. So those are the kinds of things that we can do with our platform. And those are the things that I think a financially strong company is morally responsible to do especially in this crisis. One of the things this crisis has brought out is an acceleration of certain trends that were already occurring. And one of them really is what is the role of banks in our financial system going forward? What is the role of digital payments? How do you see this changing in the future? I think there are three major trends that have been dramatically accelerated. So the first one, obviously, is this move from physical to digital. Before COVID-19, you know, we were all worried about how many screens, what kind of screen time, and now we don't have enough screen time and enough technology. Everything from education to healthcare to entertainment to retail, it's all moving towards digital at a very rapid pace now. People are seeing how simple and easy it is to do things like telemedicine and to take classes online and just how important it is to have the right technology at home. Second big trend that's happening is this is going to, I think, forever change the face of retail. You know, retail used to be about location, location, location. And now that is radically shifted to it being digital first physical second, and physical is mostly about pickup, not really browsing in a store, or to be a distribution center to ship or to have a delivery to somebody's house. And even when somebody comes into a store, checkout is going to be radically redefined because of health concerns. They're putting up plexiglass in front of cashiers. Nobody wants to handle cash anymore. Nobody wants to pick up a pen or touch a screen to sign. So retail is changing. And the final thing that's changing to the point you were making, Mike, is this acceleration to digital payments. Governments are clearly 
accelerating their thinking around digital currencies. When we were working with Treasury and the Small Business Administration and congressional leaders on the Hill, all of them were thinking like, how do we distribute $3 trillion of stimulus out to our citizens in ways that we don't have to mail checks? How can we do it all electronically? And there are different ways of thinking about our monetary system. And so I think those three trends are going to start to occur. And those have all been happening, but they have been vastly accelerated. You're going to see the demise of cash happen much quicker than I had ever assumed as a result of that. And I think all of us need to re-examine our role in the ecosystem as a result of those trends. And clearly, the vast majority of those trends play right into the sweet spot of what PayPal has been evolving towards and is today. Dan, over the last few decades, the Milken Institute and many others have been increasingly concerned about the future of developing countries in the world. The concern has been if this is the future growth of the world's population and where most of the children will be, what about their economic systems? They don't have to repeat the systems of the United States or Western Europe or Japan. Their banking system will never develop along those lines. And what role can PayPal play and is it playing to create liquidity and build more prosperous economies in these emerging markets? I think there is a real hope when you think about leapfrogging what was and evolving to what could be. And let me give you a couple of examples of this. In many parts of the developing world, they really didn't move from no communications to plain old telephone service or landlines to mobile. They just jumped straight to mobile. There'll be over 6 billion smartphones in the world over the next three to five years. The cost of a smartphone in India is now under $25. And think about a smartphone. A smartphone basically gives you all the power of a bank branch in the palm of your hand. And so if you can start to connect digital payment platforms to all of these mobile devices around the world, I think that we can do things at half to 80% less cost than the traditional financial services industry. Let me give you an example of that. International remittances from people who have immigrated to one country and then are sending money back to somebody they love in their home country. You know, typically that costs somewhere between 8 to 12% fees if you go and do that. So you send $100, they really only receive 88 to $92. But if you did that digital wallet to digital wallet, the maximum cost for that is maybe about 3%. And so I send $100, $97 gets to the, to the wallet holder in the home country. Not only do you have more money to spend, but you can do it immediately instead of going to a place waiting in line, sometimes waiting three days to get your money. You have your money instantaneously, safely. And I think there is the foundation of a solution in using technology to enable financial management 
in ways that's never been able to have been accessed before. It's not the only thing. We need the right regulation. We need the right regulatory environment. But I'll tell you, when I talk to regulators around the world, and I do, they all want to do the right thing for their citizens. And we are far from where we need to be on that. But somewhere in there, there's a solution. And that gives me a lot of hope and a lot of enthusiasm for what we might be able to do to help in that arena. Dan, that's precisely what we've seen around the world. As your mobile smartphone becomes your education, your health, your business, your bank, your entertainment, it bodes well and the position that PayPal will play in that effort. There is another area I'd like to cover with you, Dan, and that is so many philanthropic efforts that we're relying on events to occur, marches, walks, entertainment, gatherings, concerts to fund their philanthropic medical programs, social programs. And I know you instituted this a few years ago. Talk to us a little bit about the growth and what you're seeing in creating a platform for philanthropic giving worldwide. There are two areas I'd like to talk about on that, uh, Mike, that I think both are really interesting and inspiring. The first is just the outpouring of human generosity on our platforms. There have been use cases now for both PayPal and Venmo, you know, that we've never seen before. People spontaneously, virtually tipping bartenders or artists, musicians, neighbors, small businesses, giving to their schools, to their places of worship. And people not only are doing that, but when they receive that, are then paying that forward to somebody else who is even in more desperate need. And watching that happen across the platform and really explode across the platform in terms of P2P types of payments, it's not your typical P2P payment where you know, you're paying your babysitter or somebody who comes to your house for some sort of service. This is now much more about acts of generosity that are happening across the platform. The second thing that we really thought about, because you know our mission is to democratize financial services. It's a fancy way of saying that managing and moving money should be a right for all citizens, not a privilege for the affluent. And we thought, could we democratize giving as well? Could we democratize philanthropy? Because, you know, we have this huge platform, loads of consumers who we thought might want to give if we made it simple and easy for them, and lots of nonprofits and NGOs who were on our platform. And basically, we created this PayPal giving fund and this ability to easily connect our consumers with NGOs and uh, nonprofits. Here's what we found, like to your point. Last year, we raised over $10 billion on our platform for philanthropic causes. This year, from the time the pandemic really began until today, where we really shifted everything over to allowing customers easy access tax reporting types of things so that we could print those out for people in a seamless manner. We've helped to raise and enabled $2.8 billion already 
These are unbelievable numbers. And to your point, they come in small amounts, under $60 on average, and from large numbers of people who can just give anything from $5 to hundreds of dollars. We are raising billions of dollars that are obviously making a huge difference to charities and NGOs and nonprofits around the world that are doing things that are so important, maybe more important than ever in the time of this crisis. And when you consider the money you raised is really probably multiplied in how it's been used, this has changed the world for so many people. Dan, I want to thank you for your leadership that has come to fore during this period of time. And your comment about democratizing capital and access to finance, to me, was what set me on my career in 1965. And I look in awe at what you've been able to accomplish in your leadership and your team at PayPal to democratize access to finance and financial education for literally hundreds of millions of people around the world. Good health to you and your team, and thank you for joining me today. Thank you so much, Mike, for having me. Real pleasure. Find more episodes on iHeartRadio, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or milkeninstitute.org slash podcast, where you'll also find the latest COVID-19 updates. Until next time, stay safe and healthy.